when we started this uh, series way back in chapter 1 and way back in August, one of the things I suggested is that we would be building what you could call a gospel vocabulary as we make our way through this letter to the Romans. And there is a very, very big word in this passage. This passage, verses 21 to 26, is arguably one of the most densely compacted passages that you'll find any place in the Scriptures. And the big word that is in this passage, it appears actually seven times. You won't find it that way in the English uh, versions because there are two different words that are used to render this one word. Um, But the word that does appear here is the word righteousness. It's translated righteousness in verse 21 and verse 22 and, and later. It's also translated just and justifier in verse 26. Uh, It's the same word seven times it appears here uh, in this text. And it's just, it's a big, big and tremendously important word. And, And Paul's use of the word has really everything to do with what his purpose is in this letter. Just, just remember that he's writing to these folks uh, who live in Rome. He's writing in 55, 56, 57 AD, something like that. He's writing you know, not that long after the death and resurrection of Jesus, 22, 23 years, something like that. He's writing to a mixed congregation. He's writing to uh, a group of people who are both Gentile in their uh, ethnicity and in their cultural background, and he's writing to to Jewish people who are in these congregations in in Rome, people who are Jewish in ethnicity and and in their cultural background. And and he's telling them one gospel because there's one gospel for everybody. That's right. There's not one pill for one person and another pill for another person. There's one pill for everybody, to use medicinal language, pharmaceutical language. One gospel for Jew and Gentile alike. And, And the Jews and Gentiles both really needed to understand that. And Paul just keeps hammering away at it, pounding away at it, so that he can get them on the same page with respect to their need and with respect to the answer to their need. What I suggested to you last week, is, uh, is that, that a way to think about what's going on here in this letter. Uh, as Paul uh, writes this, I mean, this is one of the burdens of his heart. It's not his only burden, but it's, it's the burden of his heart that's at the core of all of his other burdens. The, the kind of the core burden and the core question is, how can I be right with God? How can I be accepted by God? How can I know peace with God? Paul says in Romans 5, we'll, we'll get there probably sometime before the end of 2010. Paul says in Romans 5, having been justified, there's that word again. It's the same word that appears seven times in this text. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You know, there's, he has a peace. In, in 8.1, he says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No threat of judgment. No sort of Damocles hanging over your head. How do you get there? How do you get to that place? That's the kind of the core burden, the central burden of his heart. How can I have peace with God? How can I be accepted with God? How can I be right with God? I have a friend, a pastor who lives in Orlando. He's fond of saying, if it won't matter in a hundred years, it doesn't matter now. It won't matter in a hundred years. It doesn't matter now. 
it kind of puts stuff that seems to be important in perspective. What's going to be true probably of everybody in this room, with the possible exception of Haley Belknap, what's going to be true of every one of us in a hundred years? We'll be dead and gone. It'll be over. It'll be over. I mean, it'll, it just is what it is, right? And if it doesn't matter, it isn't going to matter in a hundred years. If it won't be important in a hundred years, it isn't important now. And the reverse of that is true. If it will be important in a hundred years, it is really vitally important now. And what is going to be vitally important a hundred years from now for every one of us stretched out across the canopy of eternity? What's going to be true of every one of us? We're in that eternity. And honestly, according to the scriptures, we in that eternity are experienced either, either experiencing the kindness and mercy and love and beauty of God or we are face to face with his judgment and wrath. That's where every one of us will be a hundred years from now. And, and, and the question is, how do, I, how do I have peace with God in the midst of that? And I'd like to suggest that this text, and we're going to look at this text for a few weeks, again, because it's so densely compacted. There is just very, there's important gospel vocabulary in this passage. And you need to have that vocabulary in your vocabulary. You can't know the gospel if you don't have gospel words. Words mean things, and you need to have gospel words in your vocabulary. I do. And we need to use them. We need to use them with each other, and we need to use them with people who don't know them. So we're going to look at this passage, but from this passage, let me suggest we get answers to four questions. Four questions. Woo, quick. What do I need? What do I need in order to have peace with God, in order to be accepted by him? What do I need? Why do I need it? Why do I need it? Where do I find it and how do I get it? Okay. What do I need? Why do I need it? Where do I find it and how do I get it? First, what do I need? I need, in order to be accepted by God, in order to have peace with God, I need to be free of God's threat of judgment and wrath. I need a righteousness. I need a righteousness. That's verse 21. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has appeared or has been disclosed or revealed or made manifest. It's, it's out there in the open. It's a thing that can be seen, this righteousness of God. I need the righteousness of God. Paul uh, has this at the heart of what he's talking about in this letter, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel I'm not ashamed of the good news of the gospel, the glad tidings of the gospel. That's what gospel means. It's an important word to have in your gospel vocabulary. It means good news, great good news. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first, also for the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. I need that righteousness. Now, what is it? Well, quickly, it's several things. But in the first place, it is a characteristic of God. Righteousness is a characteristic of God. It is an attribute of God. 
what's the kind of the, the basic word upon which righteousness is built? Right. Right. Right? Right. There is a rightness about God. Righteousness is a whole lot more than that, but that is what it is in part. There is a rightness about God in everything that he does, everything that he does. There is a rightness in it. And I suggested to you when we were making our way through the minor prophets that that really is good news. That is a good thing to know. You remember this from a year or so ago? We looked at half of the minor prophets and, and I suggested at that time that, that God's righteousness coupled with his power, his rightness coupled with his power, what that means is there is somebody at home in the universe who cares about what is right and what is wrong and who, because he is powerful, is able to do something about what is right and what is wrong. That's a really big deal. That's a really big deal to know that somebody is at home in the universe who cares about what is right and who's able to do something about it. It's a big deal. Righteousness is God's rightness. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Okay? Righteousness is something that the whole, if you will, the whole rule and reign of God, the throne is symbolic of that. The whole rule and reign of God is founded upon. So in his realm, wherever you go in his realm, though it may be mysterious to you, perplexing, it is to me, Always is to us. Sometimes we don't get the rightness, the righteousness of God. But wherever you go in his realm, God is exercising his rule and reign and he's doing it rightly, rightly. So that's the first thing. But here's the second thing. It gets kind of bigger and larger and and frankly, it gets more hopeful. God's righteousness is also in the scriptures. His righteousness becomes virtually synonymous with his saving power, with his saving power. Listen to these passages. Psalm 98, the Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness in the presence of the nations. Isaiah 46, 13, I will bring my righteousness near, my salvation shall not wait. Isaiah 51, 5 to 8, my righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall never be abolished. You see, now it's something that extends out beyond God. It's not just something that is inside him, if you will, but now it is something that is extended out beyond him and it is something that encompasses and takes in salvation. His righteousness is manifest in his effectual power, his ability to save, his ability to save. That's his righteousness. But there's yet another sense of God's righteousness. And this is, I, I read books, right? I mean, it's my job. Thank you for making it possible for me to do this. I do this, I trust for your benefit. John Murray brings this out in his commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans, that this righteousness that Paul has in view here extends beyond a mere attribute of God. It extends beyond even God in his saving power, his saving righteousness. Murray says this, Making known God's righteousness in salvation 
makes these words virtually synonymous. But there is still more, especially in consideration of our need. Especially in consideration of our need. The righteousness of God is a righteousness that elicits from God the divine approval. It is something in which God must take delight. It is something which must satisfy him. It is something that must conform to him. And this is my translation of the word. It is a kind of uber-righteousness. A super-righteousness. What Murray calls a God-righteousness. You see, a righteousness that is a, if you will, a tsunami righteousness. A massive righteousness. An uber-righteousness. Hyper-righteousness. However you want to think about it. A righteousness that cannot be calculated in its height and length and breadth and depth. That's the righteousness Murray suggests Paul has in view here, a tsunami righteousness. And that's what we need. That's what we need, friends. We need a righteousness that is a super abounding, overflowing tsunami righteousness because of the second thing, because of our need. Why do we need this righteousness? We need this righteousness because we are unrighteous. If God is right, we are not. If God is straight, we are crooked. If God is whole, if God is whole, meaning perfect and complete, we fall far, far, far short of that. And that's been Paul's burden up to this point. He's been burdened to try to communicate to his readers the depth and the extent of our need. He's been burdened to convey to his readers that there is bad news. There is this dark cloth, if you will, against which the brilliance and beauty of the good news of the gospel begins to shine. We need this uber-righteousness, this super-righteousness, because of the extent and depth and magnitude of our need. That's what he's been trying to show us. Think back to the Old Testament. Just kind of think across the pages of the Old Testament. Paul says here in in this passage that this righteousness, this righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You think back across the Old Testament. You think back across the law and the prophets. You think, well, where? Where do I see this? Well, you see it across the whole scope of the Old Testament. You think, think back through the book of Leviticus. If you've not read Leviticus lately, it's, uh, it's kind of a tough read. My daughter was reading it. She was about 12 years old. She was trying to read through the Bible in a year, and I stumbled into her room one night, maybe I've shared this story, and she was asleep with her Bible propped up on her lap. I woke her up, she looked up, and then she looked back down at her Bible, and she said to me, oh, the molds, the molds. 
I'm finished with the molds. I mean, there are these laws in Leviticus and Numbers that have to do with every manner, form, and shape of uncleanness, every kind of uncleanness. She was stuck in the molds. The molds put her to sleep. Leviticus and Numbers are not easy reading, but across those pages, there are all of these sacrifices. There is blood flowing everywhere. There are all of these things that have to be done and performed so that people can be clean, ritually clean, ceremonially clean. Why is that all there? Why do we go through this day after day and week after week and month after month and year, decades, century after century, repeating these things again and again and again? What God is doing across the pages of the Old Testament with literal physical acts is reinforcing this idea that we are unclean, that we're unrighteous, that we have a need. And he's reinforcing the second idea that there is nothing we can do to cleanse ourselves. Nothing we can do to cleanse ourselves. Can't wash, can't kill, can't bleed, can't use toxic chemicals, can't conform to a moral code. None of it, none of it will take it away. There is an uncleanness about us. There's an unrighteousness about us that we can't remove by all of this shed blood and all of these cleansing rituals. And you know, that idea, that idea that there is something unclean about us, it's actually worked its way into our literature. It's a part of the corpus, if you will, the body of literature that we read when we're in junior high school and high school. Edgar Allan Poe, I shared this this last week with with the men at Tuesday's table. Edgar Allan Poe, you, you all have read, haven't you? The short story, The Telltale Heart. You know the story, right? A man kills another man, dismembers his body, puts it under the floorboards of the bedroom, just as the police come. There's no heart beating beneath the floorboards. There's no pulsating sound emerging from beneath that floor. The man who's committed the crime knows that he's guilty and it is conscience. It's his conscience that is pulsating, pounding out, pounding out the sound, unclean, unclean, guilty, guilty, guilty. Folks, I want to say to you this morning, a guilty conscience is a sign of hope. A guilty conscience is a sign of hope. Now look, we can go down this, this, it wouldn't be a rabbit trail, it'd be a fruitful thing, we just don't have time for it. There is true guilt and there is false guilt and there are many of you who labor with false guilt. And, and what you need and what I need, and I'm one of those people who labors under false guilts of all kinds, what I need more than anything else is to go back again and again and again and again to the cross and do what Martin Luther did and speak to the one who would raise these accusations against me and say, you have no place here. And the reason you have no place here is because Jesus died for this. 
It's gone. It's done. But it's also an appropriate road to go down to suggest that a guilty conscience can actually serve your ultimate well-being wonderfully. Because the God who inhabits the universe, who cares about what is right and is able to do something about it, is a morally impeccable and perfect God. And he has created you in his image with moral capabilities. And your conscience, your conscience is a gift to you from God. And by your conscience, you hear the pulsating heart. Lady Macbeth knew this, didn't she? Oh, boy. Don't you love... You know, the reason Shakespeare... The reason Shakespeare is going to be read for another 100 or 200 or 500 years and the reason other people are going to end up as so much fodder for worms in garbage dumps is because Shakespeare got this. He gets this. You remember Lady Macbeth? Out! Damned spot out, I say. She'd conspired with her husband to kill the king. They executed the crime. Out, 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 out. Damned spot out, I say. Later, later she says, here's the smell of blood still And all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. She calls for the doctor. And how does the doctor respond? The doctor says, this disease is beyond my practice. More she needs the divine than the physician." More she needs the divine than the physician. Shakespeare got it. Danielle Steele will not be remembered in a hundred years. But Shakespeare will. So where do I go to get it? Where do I go to get it? And this is the third point. Where do I find this righteousness? And the answer The answer is in God himself. The answer is in God himself. When Paul says that this righteousness that has been made manifest, when he says this in verse 21, says that it's been made manifest apart from the law, what he is saying is that this righteousness has been revealed, made manifest, declared, set before us apart from any obedience to the law. That's what he means. And he says, it is the law and the prophets that point to this righteousness. The law and the prophets do one thing. The first thing they do, Paul says it in verse 20, they make us aware of the depth of our need. We looked at this last week. But the other thing that the law and the prophets do across all of the pages of the Old Testament 
what the law and the prophets tell us, the whole of the Old Testament is that this righteousness is to be found in God himself who gives this righteousness freely. He gives it freely. He says later, Paul does, that he gives it as a gift. He gives it freely. He offers it freely. Where do you see that in the Old Testament? Where do you see that across all of the pages of the Old Testament? Well, it's arguable that you see it on every page of the Old Testament. That this righteousness comes from God. It is given freely by God. You ask, where do I go to get this righteousness? You go to God for it. But I will tell you, the most dramatic and most powerful picture, I've believed this for years. I teach it in my newcomer's class. The most powerful picture that I see any place in the Old Testament of this righteousness being given by God himself as a free gift for the unrighteous is Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. You can either turn there and follow along as I sort of narrate this passage or you can just listen and go home and read it this afternoon. Zechariah is given a picture of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord in the Lord's presence. I just listened to a sermon this last week by Tim Keller in which he refers to this passage. I'm not stealing it from Tim Keller. I loved it before I heard it from Tim Keller. Okay? I'm not a Tim Keller wannabe. I'm not a Tim Keller knockoff. I like his books a lot. But I loved this passage before I heard him preach it, just for the record, okay? But what he did show me is something that Ray Dillard showed him years and years and years and years ago. And that is this. What you have in this passage, Zechariah chapter 3, is a picture of Joshua, who was then the high priest, standing in the presence of the Lord, which means standing in the Holy of Holies, that place where the very presence of the Holy God dwelled in the midst of Israel. And the thing I learned this last week is that before the high priest could go into that holy place, he went through a whole series of rituals. And that whole series of rituals was designed to keep him from further contamination and to cleanse him of present contamination. And so the high priest would go into seclusion a week before the Day of Atonement, which is what is being depicted here. He would seclude himself, keep himself away from anything that might contaminate him. And as the day drew closer and closer and closer, he'd take more and more baths and he'd pray more and more fervently and he'd confess more and more and more of his sins. Why? To get himself clean, to go into the presence of the Holy One of Israel. And then he would go in. And the first thing he would do, he would first make a sacrifice for himself. And then he would come out. 
and he would take off the linen garments that he had put on before he went into the holy place. He would take them off, they would be burned, and he would take a bath and he would put on new linen garments and he would go into the holy place again and there he would make a sacrifice for the rest of the priests. And he'd come out again and he'd take off the linen garments again and they would be burned and he would take yet another bath and he would go into the holy place yet a third time there to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people, beginning with himself, then all the priests, and then all the people, always concerned to go into the presence of God holy and pure. And look at what the text says. Look at what the text of Zechariah chapter 3 says. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Why? Because Satan was accusing Joshua the high priest. And why was Joshua being accused? It's in verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord clothed with filthy garments. After all that, filthy. Now, I have to be discreet at this particular moment. There's a very specific word that's used in the text, a very specific Hebrew word. And folks, I just have to be discreet and give you a generic definition of that word. It is a word that describes bodily emissions of all kinds. And Joshua is standing in the presence of the Holy One of Israel, clothed in garments, covered. Covered. After all those baths and all of those burnings, And all of those cleansings, covered, covered with garments themselves, covered with bodily emissions of all kinds. Where do you see the gospel in the Old Testament? Why does Jesus take those disciples on that road from Jerusalem to Emmaus and show them everything the Old Testament said concerning him? I got to believe Zechariah 3 was one of the passages. Where do you see the gospel? You see it here because look at what is next spoken. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure priestly vestments. This is an angel. This angel. Does this angel have the right to disrobe Joshua, the high priest, and to declare to him that he, the angel, has taken away the iniquity of Joshua the high priest, that he, the angel, has the authority to clothe Joshua in royal vestments, priestly vestments. He's an angel. Ah, Which angel is he? He's the angel of the Lord. He is the pre-incarnate Jesus. He is the one vested with all authority by his Father. He is the greater Joshua. 
He's not an unclean Joshua. He's a clean Joshua. And the greater Joshua, the greatest angel of the Lord, the greater high priest, strips Joshua of all of his filth and corruption and clothes him in pure vestments, pure priestly vestments. You wonder what happens when you come to Jesus, when you say, Jesus, I finally get it. My need is deeper than I ever knew. I finally get it that my sin is far more serious than I ever conceived. I'm far more unclean, far more unrighteous than I could even know. Do you know what happens to a person who says, I need a righteousness that comes from the very throne of God, Jesus. This is so good. Jesus disrobes that person of all of that uncleanness and replaces those unclean robes with the robes of a pure, perfect, holy priest. And then Zechariah gets into the act, and I love this. He's been watching up to this point. He's been watching. He's thinking, I can't believe this. I can't believe, number one, that the high priest, after all of that stuff, is still so dirty. But what I really can't believe is that God takes it upon himself to strip him bare and reclothe him in pure holiness. I have to believe that Zechariah is so caught up in this, so amazed by it, that he can't help but blurting out in verse 5, put a turban on his head. Put a turban on his head too. Don't just stop with the clothes. Put a turban on his head. And what is the turban? It's the headpiece of a prince. It's the crown of a king. Don't just make him a priest. Make him a king. What does Jesus do at the cross? This is what he does. Where do you go to get this righteousness? Where do you go to get this righteousness? You go to God himself. Not to, not to cleansers, not to moral codes. They don't work. They can't do it. You need what C.S. Lewis calls an alien righteousness. And when you cry out to the God of heaven and earth for the righteousness that he alone gives, he strips you of your unrighteousness and clothes you in the righteousness that comes from him, which he finds perfect and acceptable in his sight. So how do you get it? You get it by working harder. You get it by pedaling faster. You get it by trying all the more. No. No. It's a gift. You get it by faith. Paul says... This gift, this righteousness comes to us, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ, by entrusting myself to Jesus Christ, by abandoning everything else and entrusting myself fully and solely to Jesus, by receiving what he's done. Francis Schaeffer used to say, you receive this gift by offering the empty hands of faith. By receiving what is given, by accepting what is given, not by pedaling faster, trying harder, 
but by receiving. Now, I can think of only two reasons why anyone would look at Zechariah 3, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3. I can think of only two reasons why a person wouldn't accept this. And it's really one, pride. The only reason, the only conceivable reason that a person would say nuts to this is that you're too proud to admit that you need it, which is denial, or you're simply too proud to accept the gift. My dear friends, and I, I know you folks pretty well. I know most of you pretty well. I don't know all of you that well. But may I do what Paul did when he wrote to the Corinthians. May I plead with you. May I implore you that you not allow pride to get in the way. Either the pride of denial or the pride of refusal. Denying that you need it or refusing to accept it. Here is this empty cross behind me. It is the source of righteousness for all who believe. It is a gift offered and freely given. And my plea is that you would accept it if you've never done it before. It may be, it may be that you've never said, I really am unclean. I really am unrighteous. God, I need what you have. And because of Jesus, give it to me. Give it to me. Maybe you've never said, said that. May I plead with you, encourage you, that you think hard about these things, that you be prayerful about these things, and that you, in fact, cry out to God who gives this freely and ask him for this gift of this righteousness that comes from him. We're going to come to the Lord's table now. We're going to sing before we do. We're going to sing this in